What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! <laughs> oh, that... <laughs> That was loud. <laughs> I have, I'm rarely in here in the studio. No, I gotta I make it, it count. I appreciate it. My name is Jared, and I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. Today we got Ryan in studio. What What's up, up, Ryan? Film fans. And we got Tommy. Hey, Jared. How are you doing? And joining us today, we have a special guest from the Film House podcast. You are the producer of the Film House podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We got Dan with us. What's up, Dan? What's up, guys? Happy no. to be here. This is awesome. Yeah. Glad to have you, man. Another uh, fun house friend joining the party. So today we're talking about... Yes. <laughs> Give him the clap. Today we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the 2019 movie written and directed by Quentin Tarantino starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. As always, we're going to go around and get first impressions. What did people think about it? Let's start with Ryan. Ryan, what did you think of this movie? Um... Well, I'm probably not the best person to go with because I give it a resounding okay. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, I had a I enjoyed myself while I watched it. My overarching criticism or, or comment is is what is the point of this movie? Fair enough. <laughs> this movie is pointless in my opinion. It, not that I didn't have fun. I had a great time. He and he made a very well crafted pointless film. But <laughs> what is you know like like to me this movie is for an audience of one man. His name is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. He, it is just like, like this is the most masturbatory of his no, films, I not, feel not like. Not more no than way. The Hateful Eight. I don't think so. No, Hateful Eight, at the very least, was trying to tell like this twisty story. This was kind of like just... You're like I'm gonna pack as many references into the first hour of you know that doesn't need the first hour doesn't need to exist in this movie basically before they get to the Aww. camp before they get to the Manson camp what, you know <laughs> God damn that was just a lot I mean I had fun like I said but um but yeah it, it was just kind of like needlessly packed with references whereas in his other movies it felt like there there was just kind of cool window dressing like you're into the story that seems really like deliberate. And you know every scene seems like it needs to be there, and then uh, uh, but then there's also this, these cool like things that they're throwing out. This it seemed like it was like a huge wink, wink, nod, nod. Like oh yeah, we're throwing out this movie, this, and that's like part of the enjoyment of this movie. I felt like at the beginning. Then you get to the great ending, you know, yeah. and I mean that part is amazing, you know. But once again, yeah, like uh, uh, that that was my main thing. Okay, Dan, what <laughs> what's you the think? point? I loved it. It is super <laughs> masturbatory. Like it, it is is very pretentious. But I think I liked that about it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. it, he made a movie for a specific audience, more than just one man. I think it's like people that like movies, and it was maybe a generation of films I'm not super aware of. You know, I was born well after the the late '60s, but he crafted a world I liked just being in. Like you said, the first hour was pointless. I love just hanging out with those guys when they're riding around in a car. Uh, you know, down the Sunset Strip or down Santa Monica, looking at billboards or playing whatever '60s music was going on. I was Fair just enough. down to hang with them. Honestly. It's a hangout and, movie. And and Leo and Brad were, I thought, fucking spectacular. I'd watch them be buddies in any movie. Yeah, uh, I, I could have watched them for the what is a four hour and twenty minute assembly cut <laughs> when they first did it. Oh, I would I would sit and watch that honestly because I enjoyed them both so much. All right, and and uh, the ending was badass, and <laughs> yes. and strange. I, I think it'll be fun to talk about. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had no, I had no problem sitting through Quentin masturbating. I guess <laughs> me neither. <laughs> honestly, like I said, just he's he's, he, he's a master filmmaker, right? So it's just cool to go along with her on a ride with him. Even mediocre Tarantino is better than almost everything, everything else. else that's coming out yeah. today. So I would, you know, yeah, just compared to him. Mid -mid sure, sure. Well, that's tough though. He's made too many good movies, so anything he makes is comparing to like really, really good shit. It's hard. Tommy, what'd you think? I think that I'm sort of with you guys. I, I would put it sort of in a lower tier Tarantino sort of film, but I still think it's really good. Uh, like, I mean, there are just so many great scenes in this movie. So yes, it's slow. I found, but the 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 scene where Cliff goes to the Manson family ranch—that's just a great sequence. Leo freaking out in his trailer it was just wonderful. I love the Bruce Lee fight scene. I thought that was great, <laughs> and I love the ending. I love the last thirty minutes of this movie. It's so so good. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I mean, if you. I 
I, like Howard Hawks said, if you have like three great scenes, you have a great movie. So I mean, this has you know has four or five. Three. This has like four or five great scenes. So yeah, well, if I agree with that, <laughs> I agree with everything that everyone said. There's really only one Tarantino movie that I've left the theater, and the second the movie ended, I was ecstatic. This is a masterpiece. I love this movie, and that's Django. Uh-huh. And every wow, other that's a hot take. Every other movie that he's made. Pretty much, or at least every movie that he's made that I've seen in the theater. So that's okay, basically okay. everything after Jackie Brown, I guess. Uh-huh. What do you make after Jackie Brown? Kill Bill. Kill, Kill Bill. Bill. Yeah. So everything after Jackie Brown are the only things I saw in theaters. Actually, take Kill. I, I liked Kill Bill, both of them, when I walked out of the theater. But every most of his movies, I walk out and I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to chew on this for probably years. You know, and that's how I felt walking out of this movie. But I loved all those scenes. I loved the bromance. The tension at the Spawn Ranch was unbelievably awesome. The scene with DiCaprio telling his reflection that he's going to kill himself if he doesn't nail his performance is so good. It's so good. The ending with the home invasion and the flamethrower, DiCaprio belligerently yelling at the hippies with a frozen margarita. Oh my god, it was so good. When he came busting out of that shack with the flamethrower, I was just almost oh, screaming. Yeah. You want to jump out of your seat right so there? Good. I will say that the, I was expecting it to be funnier. I was expecting really? there'd be hmm. more of those DiCaprio moments. Yeah. No, sorry. I thought I thought it was super funny for a Tarantino movie. Yeah, like lots of direct jokes. Mm-hmm. There's like a more, jokier. There's a more like bittersweet sort of melancholy feel to it, though. Like you're watching this hangout movie, but like the looming threat of the Manson family is always around the edges of the movie, and so you're just waiting for everything to go shit. And yeah. that like really sort of adds sort of like a tinge of you know despair to everything. Hmm. We we should probably talk about that at some point, but I called that after I saw the the trailer the oh, first yeah. time. Oh, sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's like there's no way they're going to dramatize the fucking Sharon Tate murders, you know? It's like... Well, yeah, I mean, after Inglourious go and there. Django, you know there's going to be some revisionist history going on. Right. But well, you're hoping for it. You're just, like, spending the whole movie like, oh, I, please, please don't I was don't surprised that, Char- that Charles, that yeah. he wasn't there. He's in it for three fucking yeah. seconds. Yeah. But, yeah, all I'm saying is that it kind of robbed the, like, oh, th- you think it's going to mm-hmm. happen, but mm-hmm. I kind of knew it wasn't going to happen. Sure. So, like, every time it, like, their, like, horror movie style would come to the Manson <laughs> family and it's just like i didn't buy it hmm. but it was it was still fun whatever yeah all right guys let's go into a recap so 50s tv star rick dalton is in a state of despair when a producer informs him that his career is coming to an end his only choice is to continue taking villain roles in westerns until he's forgotten or fly to rome and star in spaghetti westerns in a final hurrah Together with longtime stuntman slash personal assistant Cliff Booth, Rick vows to give his turn as Western villain Caleb everything he's got to prove himself that he's an actor of substance. Meanwhile, Charles Manson begins to creep on Rick's next-door neighbor Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. Struggling to find work, Cliff picks up a hitchhiker and takes her to the Spawn movie ranch where the Manson family has taken residence. Cliff checks in on the owner of the property, and after a minor scuffle, he heads back to Hollywood. Despite an initial hiccup, Rick gives a masterful performance as Caleb, but that doesn't stop the producer's prophecy from coming true. A couple months later, Rick is heading to Rome to star in a handful of spaghetti westerns. After coming back from Rome with a new wife, Rick says he's going to downsize, part ways with Cliff, and leave the acting world behind. Their final night of partying together is cut short when three of Manson's followers intercept a drunken Rick on their way to terrorize the Polanski residence. They opt instead to kill Rick, Cliff, and Rick's new wife, but with the help of Cliff's dog, the Manson followers are brutalized, lit on fire, and ultimately (laughs) killed. After the incident, Rick is invited into the Polanski house where they reveal that they're fans of his. End of movie. End of fairy tale. End of fairy tale. All right, guys. Sorry. I don't know what that was for, but before we move on, <laughs> want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at This Week in Movies. So if you want to stay up to date on movies coming out this weekend, if you ever wonder about which movies to see, which ones to skip, you know, we're much more about movie analysis. But if you're much more about the up to the second stuff, check out the This Week in Movies podcast or TWIM for short. It's fresh reviews, analysis and insights for the latest movies in wide release. They won't spoil any of these movies. Without first giving you a warning, unlike our podcast where we constantly spoil everything, it's a weekly podcast, so subscribe now on your podcast platform of choice. And now back to the show. All right, guys, let's dive right in. Um, And so since this is the Show Me the Meaning podcast, and we've already agreed that this is basically another pulp Tarantino romp where he's basically... Uh, masturbating and you know (laughs) masturbatory as an adjective. Didn't seem masturbatory. No, well, I agree, but let's not let's not immediately dismiss the film. I'm not. Let's first talk about 
the obvious meta-cinema going on here. So as Tarantino often does, he's constantly drawing attention to the medium. So not only in the subject matter of the movie, but in some of the aesthetic choices as well. So you've noticed sometimes during the movie, some of the dialogue is deliberately dubbed over poorly. Uh, there are blank frames between the real changes. The scratches on the film are exaggerated. There's also a thing in this movie where they linger a lot on people watching films or TV. So there's the whole thing with Sharon Tate going to the theater to see her own movie. What did you guys think of that scene? Do you like that scene? I did. I, I do. I, I love that scene. I loved everything with like Sharon and like going, watching her on her like normal day. Her driving, her picking up a book with Clue Gallagher, her going to the movies. It just sort of normalized her to uh, to an extent. Mm. And it's sort of an interesting sort of dichotomy because, you know, Rick sort of idolizes that lifestyle. And yet we're watching Sharon just do the most mundane things imaginable. Mm. And it's cool to like... See an see an actress going to see themselves on the big screen for the first time. That just I just such a, humble, I guess. Yeah. There's such a sense of wonder to it because a lot of times you hear stories about like people going to their premieres and then immediately ducking out because they don't want to actually watch themselves or watch the or watch the film. But here, there's like such a joy. She has such a joy in watching herself on screen that I think that. Yeah, the, and how she she lovely. nailed her kung yeah, fu she thing. Fucking, yeah, oh, she's doing her moves, watching them again. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm curious, you know, that was the scene that popped out to me as one of the ones that seemed the most superfluous. What were the scene? And, and so you liked that scene, though, Ryan. Yeah. Even the scenes I thought were superfluous, I liked. Okay. <laughs> yeah, for me, the superfluous stuff was sort of the Leo in the Western stuff. Yes, yeah. all and of him, that. like, talking with the girl for, like, the little girl for, like, 15 yeah. minutes where, like, I mean, the point of that scene is that he feels like he's a washed out and a has-been. But we've already spent, like, 45 minutes with him coming to terms with being a washout and a has-been. So I'm not sure you need another 15 minutes with, you know, some girl. The scene with him and, the, uh, him and Al Pacino was a little out of so, place uh, in the it's movie. It's a little long. It was edited yeah. strangely yeah. and, I think, performed strangely yes, also. To, yeah, we were talking about that. The one at the beginning. Yeah. 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 Just when they're, when they're at the diner, there are cuts where the continuity is way off. Which I don't know. It kind of threw me. Yeah, and they're like cutting into st stuff. It'll start on a two shot, and then it'll like just cut into Leonardo DiCaprio, which mm -hmm. is bizarre. I don't know. Yeah. So there's Cliff watches a TV show when he's home with his dog. Cliff and Rick watch FBI together, and they're commenting on his performance as well as the other actors. One of my favorite parts of the movie, although such a subtle nothing, is when they're watching it, and Rick is just like, "That guy's a fucking prick." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. And then, as you guys mentioned, we watch entire scenes play out that Rick has performed in, not only in that Western, but also with the flamethrower scene. What do you guys think of the thing where they they cut back? I, I hate to use this term, but it seemed almost like Family Guy to me at hmm. some point. Yeah, a little when, bit. Yeah. Like when he got the cigarette. Uh, that also when or it's between like... between the film and the when the girl, Pacino meeting. Somebody asks him, maybe it's another actor, it's like, is it true that you really were once considered oh, yeah. for The Great Escape? And then it cuts <laughs> to him like, in The just... Great Escape. <laughs> I, I felt like I was kind of watching Family Guy a little bit. I which... did, well, the narration was inconsistent. Like, it was kind of like it would pop in and do yeah. something and then go away. It was like at some point he called himself a, a liar or said, that's not true. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember this. Yeah, it's really up. only in like the beginning, and then in the beginning of the last third, really, the Kurt Russell narration. I thought it was weird too. Like, uh, it's not consistently over the course of the film. Yeah, just yeah, kinda, it just kind of comes in when it needs to jump. Yeah, it comes in when he like. I mean, Quinn's like, "Hey, I can do whatever I want." So I think uh, that's the point. Yeah, <laughs> the 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 boat scene with him and his wife, oh, like that, that yeah. seemed like a Family Guy thing. It was great, but also I definitely expected them to. Uh, Talk more about that later. They left <laughs> that very cut open. Cut to her ended. getting speared like, <laughs> yeah. later or on be, the film. Yeah, and it, maybe being an accident later or something. I don't know. But it's this very much like he probably killed his wife, it seems like, right? <laughs> I mean, like that's what we're supposed to believe. I think, I think you're supposed to question it, but it definitely would lead you to think he, he did something. Because, you know, he's yeah. an anti-hero. He's, he's not supposed to be the uh, golden guy. Well, he's, are we supposed, supposed to, to root dirty. for someone who murdered their wife? That's what makes it complicated. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So there's uh, also like sometimes the camera is invisible and other times we see through the lens that is being used to create a show or a movie. So there's uh, DiCaprio's performance as Caleb in the Western film. Once he flubs his line, the camera goes back to one and then we recognize that we're essentially watching through the lens of the production camera. And then there's when Cliff and Rick are being interviewed on the set of Rick's TV show. When There's also... Other entertainment is pretty omnipresent in it, so when Cliff is driving and during the credits and throughout the film in general, we're always lingering on advertisements from the era, just kind of letting them play out. Um, so my question to you guys is, so it's clear that the movie is drawing attention to the medium, but is it saying anything about it? 
Well, I think it's idealizing it that this was the heyday of Hollywood. This was the golden but was age. It? But, but I think for Tarantino, it but is. But then why wouldn't he show uh, Polanski and Penn and all these people that he grew up idolizing? But well, they're mean, kind of the background characters. They're in the movie, though. Polanski and Steve, and Steve McQueen, McQueen and Bruce Lee and like all those people. Dude, that well, Steve McQueen scene, though, was pretty amazing, right? With the yeah. guy from Billions? Yeah. yeah. Damien, uh, was it? Yeah. Lewis. Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. he, was, he, he looked perfect. He did that, you know, perfect Tarantino telling a Hollywood story, insider story. Uh-huh. I don't know. Well, the, the the what I got out of all the media in it is is you know like the story is about a, a very specific time in Hollywood when in between the old Hollywood and new Hollywood. So you ba- you know because c- him he's supposed to be kind of in like a Sam Peckinpah new age Western there. You know when they're making him like a hippie and stuff, and he's kind of I don't know if I like this. You know because he's part part of the old. Hollywood. So I think it was twofold. Quentin Tarantino just wants to make this, like, saturate you in the media of the day of the Summer of Love, 1969 or whatever, and then also show you the two different kinds of, you know, the, the old stuff that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio used to be in, and then, you know, y- you see him making the new stuff and kind of the conflict of an artist at the end of his time, basically. Well, that was like the... the- the summer of love, the end of the summer of love, when these murders happened and yeah. when that guy was killed at Altamont, like that was the the end of the hippie movement, right? Or what Pretty people much. would say was the the end of the good happy times, and when the world got dark in the seventies. So right. Maybe that's what he's trying to do a little bit with flashing all this, like when the golden age, it's the a happy fairy tale time. once upon yeah, a time, and, and that is transitioning a little bit. And then I don't know what he's really trying to say with the the end of the film necessarily that maybe those times should have gone on. Well, the end of the film, but, by the way, we should. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's just it, it. It does seem to me like he was just lingering, and he was just like pointing out all these things that he thought was cool. And I don't know if he was really saying anything with it, other than just immersing you in what his favorite time was. So, some trivia: Ryan is an expert on all things Charles Manson. Uh, <laughs> I did a term <laughs> paper on it in, 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 in high school. In high school, yeah. So. How did how did the whole Manson thing go? For I you? thought it was completely under uh, talked. It wasn't talked about at all. You know, like the, the, I, I guess it doesn't matter in the story they were telling. You know, because it was about one night and two friends' lives that just happened to coincide with this the Manson murders. But I wish that it was kind of a missed opportunity in the sense that they could have gone into the whole race war and the helter skelter that uh, stuff and basically what Manson was trying to do. Like like we said before, he's not in the movie. Basically, they kind of just you have to. Yeah, that's my other criticism of the movie. You really have to know the history of the Manson murders, or at least a, a general history of it, to I mean, kind I, of I know very little. I to just have know it be that... effective, the like the yeah. like the forebodingness of it. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, if you know exactly what happened, then there's a few details they throw in. They're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like he really did say the text said, "I'm I'm the devil. I'm going to do the devil's work." You know, that's like what he said that night. Um, but yeah, I wish that he had gone more into what the fuck they were doing. So more they, of what... they, they kind of turn into just regular horror movie villains. Well, I mean, they're, they're deconstructed, really. So like, we, I think the Manson family's put on some some sort of pedestal as the, as a horrific, horrific ordeal, and here they're just a bunch of you know idiot kids yeah, that easily suck. get dispatched by Cliff in like a, in horrific fashion. Like they're total morons, and I think that is sort of dispelling this sort of allure of the Manson family that has sort but of dominated I, I... media culture. Culture. I don't like as, as opposed to Inglorious Bastards, where it was so cathartic to see Hitler get shot up because sure. everyone knows exactly what he did mm. and his ideology and what he represented. You know, you know where they're coming from here. That it's like, yeah, if you know about the Manson and what they did when they get the, their head pummeled in, it's like awesome. This is great. They deserved it. But if in the movie you don't know exactly why they're evil, you just know that they were going to kill these people. You don't really know what they're all about, though. Kind of. I don't. I think like the Manson culture though is or mansion family is sort of synonymous with evil so i mean i think like it that's that's the hitler thing too hitler is synonymous with evil so i mean i think that that's all you he really was evil yeah i know it is evil yeah so there is no yeah but like i think that that that's all you need though really no but we know why he's evil because we, we you can point to the crimes here sure. it's just i guess yeah you know they killed him so why it doesn't matter they you know why they thought they were killing him but you know to me it's interesting the fact that they like had been brainwashed by the psychopath to com- commit uh, to start a race war because they were going to blame it on you know black people in the inner cities to uh, turn on the cops and was going to uh, because guess, the Beatles told yeah. them to in the White Album. But, I mean that's but, crazy. 
At the end of the day, I think that the Mansons are just a tool to create conflict. Because at the end of the day, this movie is about media. It's about movies. And they don't really have a lot to do with that. And that's why I think... So you just asked the question, if you didn't know about the Manson murders and you didn't know about them killing Sharon Tate, how would you consume this? And my take on this is that we got to kind of focus on what the... But what do people the, do people not know who the Manson family is, or that they killed Sharon Tate? Like I, don't, I bet like you, I they, that's I so, bet you that's there are so people who don't know who Sharon Tate is or was. Sure, there are people sure. who don't know who Roman Polanski is. Sure, but I think everyone knows what the Manson family is, which I yeah. guess is what I have issue with. But sort of Ryan's point is like, why glorify the Manson family anymore? Why do we need to go into what they were about? There's movies about. Let's them. just. Dis- I mean, but it's <laughs> or, about dismissing them. The it's about it's about dismissing them and sort of you know demystifying them. I think so. That's why I would argue that the movie doesn't sort of delve into sort of the Manson family cult. How long did you want this movie to be in? <laughs> I wanted that face polling scene to be twice as long. <laughs> it, I'm just it, saying, we, we didn't have to wait very long for hyperviolence. The, car, the catharsis is better if you know exactly who these people are, I feel like. I would agree. However, I think that there is something interesting in what the woman, the woman Manson, one of the women who was uh, part of the Manson trio said before they go to kill Rick Dalton. And she, she says something along the lines of, all entertainment is about murdering people, and that's wrong. We should go show them the logical end to their sentiments or something like that. And to me, <laughs> this is my this is really the only meaning I can derive from this movie, which may or may not be forced. Viewers, you uh, you write in, tell me what you think. But the whole thing with television being on just in everyone's house, like even entertainment affects everybody even Tex one of the Manson followers had Rick on a lunchbox as a kid and then probably the most poignant movie of excuse me the most poignant moment to the conclusion of the film is when the guy at the Polanski residence indicates that he remembers the flamethrower part from one of Rick's movies (laughs) and I think that Tarantino is saying to this girl no fuck that violent entertainment doesn't make people violent it brings people together it's our shared culture <laughs> it it's it's the saddest thing about perhaps what this movie depicts it depicts a time where culture wasn't so atomized like it is today hollywood was a more centralized system that crafted culture and and that culture gave a sense of identity like a a shared sense of identity and knowing that everyone, whether you're at the Spawn Ranch worshiping Charles Manson or you're a Hollywood celebrity living in the hills or you're broke as a joke living in a trailer like Cliff, you're spending your evening in front of the television watching FBI. <laughs> and, and that's something we can all share as Americans. And I think that that's kind of one of the beautiful pieces of nostalgia that Tarantino is reflecting on. Yeah, no, huh. that's that's good. Yeah, and I also like uh, the number one criticism against Tarantino is his glorification of violence. And so yeah. it's interesting that the Manson family is the one sort of espousing that sort of rhetoric. Right. Yeah. Uh, those, <laughs> right. Those are those are those are his critics. F you critics. Yeah. Fuck you critics. I don't I don't make people violent. I give people entertainment, and nothing binds people together. Binds a culture together like entertainment. That's kind of the most I was able to get out of this movie. I, I buy that entirely, man. It's like uh, that, that day and time where you, everyone sat down at 7.30 to watch the same show. Yeah. Everyone in, in the country would do that. And yeah. We, I guess we don't have that you, anymore. You had Ed Sullivan. Yeah, now that Game of Thrones is over. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. See, I uh, um, I would say that uh, uh, the, the, the one bit of meaning I got from the movie was in the very last five minutes when he when he goes because the whole movie i'm kind of like i was saying was like what's the point but uh, i was having fun but then at the end when he's walking up and i could tell that he was about to go schmooze with sharon tate and the celebrities all night i'm like that is hilarious that i I thought about you actually jared like that because it seemed like such a cynical move to use this gruesome murder as a setup to basically just get kind of a struggling actor to get maybe a job later (laughs) you know like it's like like that's what this was used for is like oh wow the the fairy tale ending is maybe i'll get a job a a, a small role in a roman polanski movie (laughs) because i stopped these horrific murders of these people gutting a pregnant woman like well he didn't really stop them cliff did he had the flamethrower. Cliff's dog. Fl- yeah, oh, yeah. Flamethrower. yeah, Ruby yeah. had a big hand in this. Brandy. Brandy, I'm Brandy. sorry. I meant to add, I was going to ask you what you thought of that, because I know we're both dog lovers. Yeah. But, you know, he the dog is extremely violent, so you're yeah. kind of perpetuating the myth that oh, pit bulls are these pit bulls. evil dogs. Well, it was I have a obedient. Pit bull too. Oh, I love pit bulls. No, they're super sweet. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that 
if somebody, even if you have a sweet, nonviolent pit bull, you'd want your pit bull to get rowdy if someone came in your house and was holding you yeah, at gunpoint, right? If some knife guy showed up. If you trained yeah. it to, like Brad Pitt apparently like, had. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That part was fucking badass. Yeah, I mean, that scene is fucking amazing. Um, well, okay, more to what you were saying. I was actually going to ask you, since I don't know a ton about these murders, can we say that if those murders didn't happen and Sharon Tate and those eight other people didn't die that night, then Hollywood would or would not have blank. I don't like it seems to be some such an event that is so culturally significant mm-hmm. that, you know, in, in a sense, we could say, all right, well, if in Inglorious Bastards, Hitler was killed in a movie theater in whatever year that was, 1943 in the movie, then it would have, you know, significantly changed the whole trajectory of the war millions of people wouldn't have died whatever yeah is there any kind of fantasy that we can infer from the fact that that event doesn't happen in hollywood well i mean like he like dan was alluding to like the whole hippie movement kind of died that like that night because you know the whole criticism was that oh these just drug smoking hippies or whatever what you know are up to no good and then this guy was just like a a boogeyman to, to put a, on all the newspapers saying like that is what we're talking about everyone's trying to become this guy you know mm-hmm. everyone's gonna you know all of our youth are gonna start murdering people yeah. i was gonna say that, that this starts the boon of like serial killers i think in the u.s the glorification of, or, or, oh. of charles manson really begets you know more and more horrific sort of serial killers and crimes trying to gain gain infamy via that oh so. shit so we wouldn't have true crime i don't think we'd have true crime <laughs> no there, i don't think it was eight else. people that night either it was like over two nights yeah, so. yeah. there were there oh, were several other me. murders right and i think there was one before the plansky sharon tate at spawn ranch though i think it i think they like killed someone there as this I is our recall. expert yeah it's been, it's, been yeah, it's been a while. But <laughs> I do know it was, but, yeah. there was the La Bianca well, murders, which were the following night after the Sharon Tate murders, I believe. That's right, because the reason... they were going to try and cast, like, make it look like it was someone else yeah. Yeah. and not the they, Manson yeah. folk. I believe the reason they, they did the Tate killings was to get another one of their members out of jail, as I yeah. recall. Um, I'm not particular on the specifics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, my history book. <laughs> anyway, I think the summer of love wouldn't have ended and we'd all be living in communes and boning. Yeah, all the, the time. Uh, utopia, dude. Okay. Charles Manson. But just... seriously, what's that guy's no, problem? Kidding. Like he had he had everything going, right? Who? Manson. He, oh. he had like all these like beautiful women doing what he wanted all the time. Even some he dudes. He was fucking doing... whacked out of his mind, man, on the fucking acid, bro. You know, and he just had this fucking. And then the Beatles were talking to him through the White Album. You know, he had a whole. Uh, he had a whole army. Right he just thing. had to ruin a good thing. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, other part that I want to draw our attention to is in during the Spawn movie ranch scene. There's a really clever part where they're kind of playing with Western cinematography conventions. So when Cliff is at the ranch approaching George's cabin, the camera emulates old Western cinematography with Cliff as the unwelcomed outsider or bandit being intimidated by the denizens of the town. So we see a tracking shot of the Manson family coming out on the porch to Mad Dog Cliff. And then once Cliff exits George's cabin, the camera cranes down past Pussycat's body like a sheriff waiting for an outlaw to exit the saloon ready to draw. I thought it was very clever. I thought it was actually like a point where I chuckled a bit, but do you guys think there's anything more to it? Well, I mean, Cliff starring in his own kind of Western, that, yeah. well, you know, it's mirroring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's whole thing he's got going. That's the only thing I can think. Yeah, I think that's that's it, basically. Like, Leo's in his own fake Western. Meanwhile, Cliff, you know, his stunt double, his, yeah, the, the, his, the, the, the fake Cliff is actually in the, the real, real Western. thing. Yes. Yeah. There we go. There it is, Tommy. <laughs> that was what I was looking also, for. Also, fun trivia fact, my roommate Sean is one of the Manson gang. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. He's oh, got cool. long hair. I only noticed him one time. It was in the wide shot when, uh, uh, when, when Cliff is beating the shit out of that dude. Mm-hmm. You know, he's back there. Nice. Another fun up, fact. Sean? I'm pretty sure Dern was supposed to be Burt Reynolds. Yes. Right? Yeah. Which Reynolds I think would died. have landed a little harder for me. Mm. I don't know. Well, the movie's like filled with character actors of, you know, shows past and films past. There's Clue Gallagher, Luke Perry's in it, yeah. uh, Dakota Fanning. Like, it's yeah. such an eclectic cast of like different people. Tim yeah. Roth cut. Like, yeah. <laughs> did you see that? I did see yeah. that. Yeah. Tim Roth, parentheses <laughs> cut. Yeah. Yeah. James Marsden cut. James- yeah. I, was t- I was telling him there's also a, a credit in the IMDb listing for Abraham Lincoln. 
So my, my theory is that yeah. that uh, was it Marsden, Tim Roth, and Abraham Lincoln were in uh, one of those spaghetti westerns they were filming, maybe. Mm. And that's uh, that, that ending part. I know we're jumping ahead here, but that ending part where all of a sudden it was like six months later, there's a bunch of narration, some stills, felt really strange to me. I think that's maybe where he cut this chunk of the movie that's missing. Mm. I don't know. I think it could be also another one of those flashback sequences. If it's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character inhabiting another film, maybe it's one where Lincoln yeah. is. I mean, what, what is a famous old movie with Abraham Lincoln in it? Young Mr. Lincoln, John Ford. Yeah. Oh, okay, there you go. I don't know. Um, so do you guys think, more to what we were talking about earlier when I asked Tommy, it's like, okay, well, why focus on this transition period, this time where these older stars were dying and the people that I'm going to assume Tarantino grew up idolizing, like Polanski, Coppola, Penn, etc. Uh, why focus on that time? And my question is, do you think that we're supposed to consume the aesthetic of the film through the lens of Rick's arc in that just as Rick's career is yielding to its inevitable demise, so too are we witnessing today in 2019 the studio system's demise? Oh, I was going to say, I thought you were going with Tarantino. That's what I was demise. thinking you were going with. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Like, yeah. Well, I they go like, hand in hand, well, right? I, f- I feel like Tarantino, f- I don't know, I, I'm just saying I, my perspective of what Tarantino feels is that he's sort of waning away. I mean, he's already said he's only going to make 10 movies. This is his ninth movie movie and I, I, I mean if you look at the discourse surrounding this movie it's like it's a little uh little it's a little rough so i wonder if like is is there a place for tarantino now and what, what in is the, the dis people don't I, I haven't read any reviews usually before like i do these podcasts of, i mean I it's the same stuff that's always sort of sort of haunted tarantino it's, it's not even it's that the violent same cases it, it's the same thing like oh is he glorifying violence oh is it violence against women it's the same sort of sort of stuff he's been dealing with his entire career but it is amplified now i think with the advent of sort of social media okay oh, sure so, people are trying to give him shit for not having enough yeah, sharon tate in the movie well there's the probably another her. two hours of yeah. it somewhere <laughs> um it, 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 transitions you know uh i know tarantino's a big film guy and you know we are leaving film entirely behind i think so a, a lot of his message seems to be about the the wonderful gloriousness of yesterday and how it was so much better. We need to hang on to it and not let it go. Well, look at the movies out right now. It's like Aladdin. It's uh, <laughs> Lion, Lion King. King. It's all remakes and sequels. And then the one original movie is his movie. And so yeah. he's definitely is the outlier in this system. I mean, it's a miracle he's still able to make these kinds of movies. Yeah. Um, and it was his biggest one. Yeah. Right. It's it's a good thing. I mean, if he wants to make 20 more movies, please. Please, Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, I really do think we like need we need people like him making these sort of big original movies even if even if not everyone likes them like it just like look at the cineplex today these are the type of movies that that are needed to sort of counteract and balance yeah but i don't okay so there's two ways to read the ending and i would say that tarantino is almost given up he's not saying that if there were <laughs> oh. 10 more me's then everything then cinema would be revitalized to me this movie is just like a Man, I, it was great while it was, man. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. He has given up. I totally agree. It's uh, this is the fantasy, and it's not. Uh, it's, it can never be real. But is the fantasy that because once again, Rick, he kills the Mansons, and then he gets invited by the quote cool kids. So, to Ryan's point earlier, it is possibly that Rick Dalton will get to make some badass Roman Polanski movies, and that the new will coexist or i'm sorry the old guard will coexist with the new guard are we meant to take it as more of an optimistic thing if we are going this meta angle about the state of the studio system or the state of cinema are we supposed to take that as a little bit more optimistic i will say that the last shot though is when the title is revealed the once upon a time so uh-huh. it, it sort of suggests that everything we're seeing uh, is a fairy tale. this right. this couldn't have ever happened right. it's, this is just what i wish could have happened mm-hmm. so i don't really see it as you know rick lives his life uh you know in the in the in doing Polanski movies, I see it as just a fantasy that I wish could have been true. I wish Rick lived next door to Sharon Tate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that that very end does make it kind of an optimistic ending, uh, a hmm. happier, you know, happily ever after or whatever. Because so much of the movie was, you know, Rick trying to come to terms with the fact that he's over the hill or he's past his prime. It's, I guess same thing with uh, Brad Pitt's character. The, the coming to accept that you are no longer the hot shit or in the prime of your life. And what do you do now? Maybe that is exactly what Tarantino's thinking in his head. And mm. maybe Star Trek will be great. I bet you it fucking will be. I mean, I, I think... I'll take $10. He will never make a Star Trek movie. <laughs> I it. thought it was a Star Trek... Oh, no, it's a Star yeah. Trek movie. I... 
Would you think because he won't do he it? He won't or... do it. He won't do it. Every like every couple of years, it's like, oh, I'm going to do a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Yeah, fucking yeah. right. Well, he hired a whole writers yeah. writing know, yeah. team to, to work on it to do what? We'll see. He like hired we'll a writing team to hash well, the script. Why out doesn't for he him. write it? He's he's, <laughs> he's an Academy Award winning writer. Yeah. yeah, I think it takes him too long. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, all right, so. Anything else you guys want to bring up? That's all I got. I've got two emails actually about this movie that we can go into. Well, I I know Ryan wants to talk about the feet. (laughs) (laughs) I love them feet, baby. Is he trolling people now with that? No, I don't think so. I think he just loves the feet. It's feet and driving shots. It's feet and driving from the back. From behind. I love that shot. Jesus (laughs) Christ. Jesus Christ, Tarantino. He just doesn't give a shit now. I mean, it's both pathological and he's self-aware, I think. I mean, after Kill Bill, how could, you know, I mean, everyone called him out on it. Well, yeah, and people give him so much shit about it. I I figure at this point, if he's sticking it that much in your face, he's got to be like, fuck you, I'm doing you what I want. Make fun of me if you want. I mean... is this I think Tarantino, I wish he was making more films simply so he could continue to say, as the social media outrage only intensifies, his, in, he can intensify his fuck you, I'm doing you what I'm doing. <laughs> they're, they're dirty now. Yeah. I like the dirty. I've never seen you know a scene where the dirty feet were in the foreground so much, but I've especially never seen two extended ones in one film. Mm. You know, That's why I think people are like, wait a minute, what the fuck's going on here? What are you trying to tell me? Yeah, Get those out of my face. <laughs> Uh, you, you were saying you didn't hear anything uh, about people trying to give him shit for not having enough Mario Robbie in it. Um, you know, I, guess I just, just haven't treat- read anything yet. Yeah, and you shouldn't probably. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I guess just not treating Sharon Tate like a full character. You know, he's he's kind of following her around, maybe fetishizing her a little bit. But something that stood out in this movie to me was almost the female gaze of just following Brad Pitt around, <laughs> taking that shirt <laughs> off, Hell yeah. just staring right at the camera, like he is- just. It's so much of it just says, look at him and how pretty he is. Don't you want to be that cool? I don't it, know. I, I think it's, it's baffling how good looking he still is. That, how old is the dude? 55. 50? 55, shit. I think. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> no. a good looking man. Yeah. Someone we were with was even like, you know, I never used to really be like one of those people that thought Brad Pitt was hot, but Brad Pitt's hot. In this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why didn't he just make another Western? I feel like. Half of this movie's runtime was a western. Well, he's already made not. his last two movies were western. I know. So it's like uh, he's a little hung up. Even when he does like a Hollywood film, he's it's still half of it is a, it's a it's western. A western somehow. <laughs> he, can't, he can't help himself. Kill Bill was a little bit too. I mean, he's always said that like he wants to do westerns. Yeah. Like, that's his thing. He wants. I to I wish he'd made a better director. one than Hateful Eight. Oh God Ooh. damn it! <laughs> Has anyone seen the full uh, Netflix four part series? Is it oh. different? It intrigues uh, me. I think there's well, more. yeah, because it's four hours long instead okay. of the. Well, what is it? Actually, three and a half. I think it's like, yeah. Yeah. So it's extra 30 minutes, <laughs> whatever. Is, is another interesting thing. Is that Quentin Tarantino giving up his fight for film? Because he, you know, he's super anti-digital. Yeah. And he went to Netflix. I was like, we'll make my movie into a weird little miniseries with yeah, you guys. I, isn't the the plan that after 10 movies, he's going to start writing books? That's what I I've read. Books and theater. But he's just not going to happen. I, uh, he does just net, say shit. He's just he's net, I actually read that this started out as a book. He's no, time in Hollywood. <laughs> I think he says, yeah, just to rile people up. I'll buy his books. Ne- Netflix yeah. is going to wave a fancy check in front of his face and he'll just make something. But does he want his movie going to re- direct to Netflix? Oh, I'm just saying he'll make like, something for Netflix, yeah. even after if it's his 10th movie and he's like, I'm done making movies, I'm done doing that or TV. I think it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> All right, anyway, so we are going to go into the mailbag. Hit us up at uh, movies at wisecrack.co. Before we get to the voicemails, let's go ahead and go with these uh, movie-relevant emails. So we got one from a guy who has emailed us before with the amazing name of Commissioner Gordon. He says, hey, guys, just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and had some thoughts on the ending that I wanted to share. I'm a current Ph.D. student in clinical psychology, and I'm being trained in a therapy that focuses on treating trauma-related nightmares in PTSD. A portion of this therapy involves having the individual write out the content of their worst nightmare, and then it has them rewrite the narrative of the nightmare to change the core themes. This can be incredibly therapeutic because it takes the power away from the nightmare and gives it back to the individual. The ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood reminded me of this therapeutic approach. By changing the ending of the real-life story, Tarantino takes the power away from the Manson family and gives it back to Sharon Tate and her friends. While we all know the truth of what really happened, I feel like this honors their memory in a way that no other ending could have. Thoughts on this perspective? 
I totally agree with it. Yeah. 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 Does it really uh, give them power, though? It's just a story. <laughs> I think um, it takes away power from the Manson family. I wouldn't. I don't necessarily know if it gives power to Sharon Tate and uh, Jay Serbling or, or the rest of the. I would argue. I it's would say. Therapeutic. I, I agree. Yeah. Exactly. That's it what is I was not say. necessarily. I don't know. Or, or, or therapeutic for Tarantino. Maybe this, the Tate or the these murders are something that's haunted him, and it's a way of him processing. It's clearly affected him. He may, I mean, yeah, I, I, cool concept for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, this next email is from Bradley. He says, "All I have to say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it's nice to see an anti-Marvel slash anti-Disney movie <laughs> in the middle of the Marvel Disney dynasty. It's just Disney, man. They're all one thing. Not only does it have all the sex, violence, and adult language you'll only find on Marvel After Dark, but it lacks a three-act structure or hero's journey." In defiance of your friends at Lessons from the Screenplay and Just Right, I don't think they're three-act evangelists. Anyway, uh, most of the threads presented in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are left hanging by the end. No Manson murders and no Polanski messing things up in this movie to name the big ones. The only thread of a buildup is text meeting Cliff again, but that just turned out to be a coincidence. We don't get many people just doing things movies since it's so hard to pull off. Probably every theater this weekend had a that's it reaction at the end, which is like some of the older Hollywood flicks where a movie just fires up the credits. All I know is I already forgot most of the Lion King remake and 80% of the newest Spider-Man film, but I will not be forgetting any of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Peace from Bradley. Nice. Well, I don't know older Hollywood flicks... Yeah, I would say that they had more happy It depends on what era he's talking about. If he's talking about some of the what Polanski represented, then yeah, but certainly not what Cliff, uh, what Dalton represented, Rick Dalton. I mean, structurally, this is a little bit more avant-garde than even the typical Tarantino movie. I mean, nobody has any sort of clear wants. I mean, I guess Rick wants to be, uh, you know, a, a Hollywood actor. star, but that's not that's sort of intangible. He doesn't like in like a whole Pulp Fiction, people are after the briefcase, or people are, you know, in in Inglorious Bastards, they're after to kill Hitler. But in this one, it, it, they're sort of reacting to, to different things. I, what does Cliff want in this movie? Like, there isn't necessarily a, a clear objective. He wants to. Ha- Feed his dog and (laughs) hang out and treat his best friend. Be awesome. Yeah, and be just a cool dude. All right. Uh, We're going to go to the voicemails. If you have comments, concerns, questions, hit us up 213-534-8807 or 21ElfHut07. Elf Hut. Because the Elf Hut is where you want to party. Is it 07 or 7? 07. Elf Hut 07. We figured that out. 21 Elf Hut 07. Yeah, we put the people on it. Let's play the uh, anonymous email. The Anonymous first one email about Midsummer. Anonymous email by Midsummer about Midsummer. We've already we've Hi, all seen it. Um, I just wanted to call in about Midsummer. Uh, in the episode, you guys talked a lot about uh, ritual and grief, but I, when I saw the movie, I thought a big theme was religion. There's a critique on religion. By the end of the film, I think uh, Ari Aster wants you to really question whether or not there's much value in these rituals. And for me, the biggest indicator of this was uh, Pele's brother and the second uh, member of the cult that was uh, selected for the sacrifice. Up until that point, they both seemed completely fine with it as if they accepted their role in the cult. But then when you see the placebo that they were given was completely ineffective, I think that just shows that kind of like their whole thing is bullshit and their reaction to realizing that they were given a placebo, I think is the most telling because instead of peacefully accepting it, they both start freaking out and they try to move, but they can't because they're paralyzed. And yeah, um, that's kind of just my like little take. And Thank you very much, Anonymous. Wait, what was the placebo? Do yeah, you... that's what I was trying to figure I guess out. When what they is were, the placebo? The, he I... put that stuff in their mouths so they wouldn't hurt when they burned alive at the end? Is that what the part she's talking about? Oh, yeah, that's okay. I sure. Think, I think, yeah. I think that's that, the only thing I, I yeah. can think of that clicks. That's right. But I, that I, was a placebo? I don't think it's a... Because uh, if that were the case, then wouldn't they be able to move? Yeah, no, I think it's like they were given a thing that they wouldn't feel pain right at the end of the movie, but then he starts screaming anyway, so he still feels pain, so I guess it it didn't work necessarily. I did not catch Um, that. Interesting. As far as the religion thing, I mean, yeah, when I talk about ritual, I'm very much kind of interchangeably talking about it with like any kind of mysticism or religion or kind of irrational act that you do as a community for the sake of doing it. Um, 
But yeah, thank you for that message, Anonymous. Let's do the one from, we're going to do one more voicemail. Let's do the one from Logan. Hi there, this is Logan calling about the Blade Runner uh, Show Me the Meaning episode. Um, in it, you guys discuss how the movie um, is written and how the movie is directed and all these wonderful things about the film. And I would have loved to have heard some more elements of uh, philosophy in regards to um, when I first saw it, I was within my first philosophy class, actually, and uh, it was a Russian bootleg that the professor provided. But in it, he uh, drew a lot of analogies uh, to Descartes uh, and how um, it's our own existence and the fact that we know we exist, much as the androids know they exist and we humans, it makes it so there's not so much of a difference. Uh, and the other kind of flashy call to it is um, Deckard's name is, really, really similar to Descartes just in general. So just a couple of tidbits for you. I'd love to hear any more philosophical thoughts. Uh, Y'all take care. Well, there's a part in the movie where Pris actually says the cogito, which is, uh, I think, therefore I am, and she says it to Sebastian before that. So, yes, there is a Descartes shout-out in the movie. Um, I guess more on his mind-body distinction and how if, you know, you have the mind, then you exist, and yeah. Uh, all right, so we're going to do one more email. This is about midsummer. This is from Carl from Sweden. He says, thanks to the two brave souls that took it upon themselves to talk about midsummer, you requested input from Swedish listeners, so I feel compelled to write. One distinct reference to Swedish culture is a poster in Danny's apartment, which is a John Bauer illustration of a fairy tale from 1912 about an innocent little princess going into the woods where she encounters a big bear, which is depicted in that illustration, among other things. Through her encounters, she is urged to take off her clothes one by one, which she does to become accepted in her natural state. She then returns home and states that her parents aren't allowed to be mad at her because she had so much fun. The bear doesn't exactly match the one in Danny's story, but her arc is very much the same as the princess's, where she needs to shed her civilized layers one by one until she is fully feral and thinking it is justified because she enjoys it. You said that she is fully realized by the end of that the communal sharing of emotions is part of a healthier society. I don't think it's quite that simple. It suggests that the mimicking of emotional expression distances the community from actual emotions. They are turning any expression of emotions into a ritual, allowing to, them to ignore the actual pain of the people screaming in agony and making the individual unable to express and by extension even identify with their own emotions. Florence Pugh is spot on throughout the movie and that smile at the end is not happy or even a realized one, but a completely dead one. Perhaps that kind of brainwashing is healthy for a person dealing with trauma, but it's hardly a journey of self-actualization for Danny. This is a story about how people can be recruited into terrorism and cults without being terrible individuals. From Carl. What did you guys think of that final smile at the end? I mean, uh, I mean, it's definitely meant to make you uncomfortable with watching. I mean, she's literally getting she's, her smile is watching her boyfriend be brutally murdered and, you know, go up in flames. So I think that it's 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 that duality between, you know, this horrific event happening and her reaction to it, theoretically. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the costume that she was in. No. <laughs> All those flowers. It was so fucking rad. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't but, know that. Is everyone else still screaming uh, when when she's smiling? Because, I mean, there no, is something, no, that... too, like, she's smiling and everyone else is still, like, doing the yelling of the guy who was screaming in there. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like she's joining the cult there, right? She, like, she's still apart from them. So, I was actually, this is uh, two separate things that Carl is referring to. So, I had said that earlier in the movie, I was, my argument was essentially that the movie has this kind of clever ambiguity of, like, yes, what the cult does is awful, but at the same time, they offer her a better support group than she got in Christian and her other friends. Sure. And I said that, like, basically, like, when she sees Christian cheating on her, she starts screaming, and then they scream back at her. Mm. And this is actually a better alternative to the support that Christian and the other friends were giving her by not remembering her birthday and not seemingly giving a shit that she just... W experience the worst thing a person could possibly experience <laughs> and uh carl's point is that perhaps that communal sharing of emotions is not actually as beneficial as i'm suggesting hmm. well, i thought i thought she found her place at the end I that's thought, what i that's how that, i read it yeah that, that was the right place for her and yeah i don't know that she was brainwashed necessarily i think she willingly i'm not saying she was in. brainwashed i'm saying that she's literally rock bottom 
Her friends aren't giving her shit, and there's this community that is literally optimized through crazy mystical ritual to allow people who, you know, to basically bring... It's like a optimized support group, basically. And she's and the And despite queen. how fucked up it is. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the part of that that I found fascinating was the, the myth of the yeah. little girl going into the woods and casting off her clothes until she was feral. That's a fascinating parallel yeah. actually yes thank you for that and, and you'd have to know, know that painting very well i guess i wonder how many swedish people know this painting or if carl's just a g yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and fun fact i took swedish in as my foreign language in college how remember much do you that? remember i do remember yeah Yaharin Beal, I have a car. <laughs> swedish carl please tell me if that was correct bra foodles dog happy birthday Oh, cool. Hell yeah, dog. Foodles dog, brah. Foodles dog. Um, I, I have just a couple uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Live, live comments, if that's cool. Go for just it. Just a couple. We got one that says, uh, um, uh, hey, Dan from Funhouse. <laughs> Hello. That's pretty cool. Stranger. <laughs> um, Seabass uh, so, uh, Neil says, I thought it was, a, I thought Once Upon a t Time in Hollywood was just about the jaded state of cinema in today's age. So we kind, kind of talked of, about that, yeah. Yeah, kind of what we were talking about, how it was just a metaphor the, for today. Shout out to that guy. And then another, what I thought was funny was, you know, Jared, you had said earlier that, uh, uh, was there a movie that Abraham Lincoln was in? Oh. And uh, Louis, very, Louis the 13th very helpfully says, film didn't exist until 1896. <laughs> oh, I meant Lincoln to, was assassinated I by a Democrat in 1865. <laughs> a lot of literal people. <laughs> He's got a point. I meant the Abraham, I mean, obviously in the credits of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they weren't saying that they actually dug up Abraham Lincoln and he was in it. So obviously I, I meant the character. Awesome, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. All right. All right. Whatever his name. Uh, Louis the 13th. I'll give you that one. Okay. All right. We're going to call it. Thanks to everybody for uh, joining us. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Dan. Dude, Dan, so tell us for... about, Dan, tell us about Filmhouse. Oh, uh, Filmhouse. Uh, we do the same thing uh, with a lot less um, smarts behind it. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> we sit down every uh, Thursday and just shoot the shit about whatever movie we think people would be interested in hearing about. Yeah, you guys are more masochistic than we are. You actually required your people to see The Lion King. No, 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 no. we did not. <laughs> I'm Yo. surprised. I was actually out that week. <laughs> Thank God. Oh, but but yeah, I saw Adam, you uploaded one. Yeah, Adam decided to do... Uh, you were actually on I that was on one, that right? one, yeah. It was, it was like, don't watch The Lion King. Here are other lion movies to go watch. And stuff. <laughs> oh, so was, none of you actually saw no. it. People got mad about that. <laughs> Maybe rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. A lot of times people don't understand we'll we tell jokes for a living yeah. um and i think it was supposed to be funny and a lot of people are like how dare you talk about a movie you've never seen which oh, you got a point but I think yeah. it, it was more it was about a joke the, it was alternative lion movies that was the idea we i talked about roar that was mine you know oh the documentary that's not a documentary <laughs> wait 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 it's the, the one where all those people got mauled by yeah, the lions. like everyone on the fucking uh, cast oh, so, and crew got mauled oh, by okay. the lions that they so were filming. So I'm aware of the behind-the-scenes thing, which is why I thought it was a documentary. Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. right, yeah. Mel Young Melanie Griffith and uh, Tippi Hedren. Gotcha. All right, guys, we're signing off for today. Thanks for watching, guys. Next week, we're doing Zombieland, because the new Zombieland oh, no. trailer just came out, and I've still never seen that movie, so I'll be oh. watching it for the first time for next week's podcast. Enjoy. Exciting. Cool. All right, see you guys then. Thanks a lot. Peace out. Bye-bye. Oh, wait. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Well, I'm a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. I'm super fly TNT. I'm the guns of the Navarone. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs>